recorded at Get a Grip Studios in Toronto, Canada, a Get a Grip management production and in association with the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Financially supported by the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors and presented by the National Lighting Bureau, the Illuminating Engineering Society, and the International Dark Sky Association. Added to the IES's 2021 Progress Report, this is Starving for Darkness, a podcast. Hey folks, Starving for Darkness is coming in hot in one second. Jane's ready to go, I know that, and you guys are ready to listen, but... Before we do, we got to talk about Evluma, the people that sponsor this show, the magicians, EVLUMA.com, hover over products, click Dark Sky Friendly, and hit up that Omnimax, Greg. And why you do that is because the Omnimax can fit in just about every existing outdoor fixture that's out there. It's a retrofit uh, bulb itself, and it has a Kelvin temperatures from 2K up to 5K, medium and multiple base, 20KV to 10K surge protection has a photo control fail safe, which if your photo cell goes out, this bulb, we'll call it, learns it over time, and then it will mimic whatever that photo cell did. So it knows what it needs to do without the expense of having to go and replace the photo cell. And all of it's in a compact size, so it's going to fit in your existing fixture. Go to evluma.com, hover over dark products, hover over products, click on dark sky friendly lighting. God, they're so They're doing it so right. Check them out, evluma.com. Now, here comes Starving for Darkness. Hello, listeners and darkness lovers. Welcome to another episode of Starving for Darkness. My name is Jane Slade, and we're so pleased to have our next guest on the show today, Betty Maya Foote. And before I introduce Betty Maya, I want to just remind everyone to check the state of light pollution in your own backyard by going to www.lightpollution.info. And you might be surprised by what you find because light pollution has crept up around us silently. And so Betty Maya is the Director of Engagement of the International Dark Sky Association. She holds a degree in Environmental and Sustainability Studies and wrote a thesis entitled Light Pollution Hazards Within Ecosystems and Mitigation Strategies for the Future. Betty Maya, welcome. It's so wonderful to finally meet you. I know that we've interacted online, um, but it's so nice to meet you in real time. And so we start every show with the same request, and I, I can't imagine how you'll pick, but could you please tell us about a dark sky experience that left you with a feeling of awe? Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. It's great to chat with you, Jane, and congratulations on your podcast and all that you do for dark skies. Thank um, you. Yeah, it's it's really hard to pick a an experience in the dark that, that leaves me with awe because every moment under the dark uh, tends to do that for me. Uh, but one that really stands out to me, I guess, is the first time I ever took a photo of the Milky Way. Um, and that was when I was working for Utah State Parks. And part of the Dark Sky Park application process is horizon photography of the night sky. And so we used the state parks camera and figured out how to focus on the stars and we're doing a panoramic shot. And as we you know, went to the south and the Milky Way appeared on the back of the screen, it was just such a magical moment because it can, photography of the night sky can almost look fake in a lot of ways. And, and I didn't really you know, think it was real. And once it became real to me and I saw that you can capture it um, even with just entry-level cameras, that was a huge uh, life-changing experience. Yeah, for some reason, I did get the feeling that you were like hooked on astrophotography and that you you got a taste of it and that has been a real uh, direction in your life that you took. Would you say that's true? Yeah, and it was it was Dark Skies that brought me to astrophotography and then once I got started with it, it became an addiction and I haven't been able to stop. I, I get that feeling that totally comes through and it's a healthy, amazing addiction. So, um, <laughs> yeah. so, so tell us about your work with the International Dark Sky Association. We'll call that the IDA um, for listeners that are just coming on to the IDA's work. And so you're the director of engagement. Can you tell me about your role and what you do? 
Yeah, sure. Um, I always like joke that if you're trying to get married, that's why you call me at IDA. But um, really what I have the coolest job at IDA, I think, because what I get to do is interact every day with incredible dark sky advocates around the world who are just doing incredible things in their communities to protect the night. So the goal that, that I bring to the work that I do is to really create a community of dark sky advocates around the world so that you don't have to feel alone in the fight against light pollution. Because it's kind of easy to feel like that lone wolf out there that's the only person who really understands how powerful light is and who wants to make those changes in, in your community. So what we try to do at IDA is create a global network of that brings people together around the world united in in their passion to protect the night. So we have a couple of different ways that we do that. Um, Basically, we try to create an online community of people. So we have we currently use Slack. We'd like to have a better platform for that, but it's a it's an easy and free way to have people connect and chat and share what they're doing, share their resources, share their successes, and ask questions, share their challenges as well. So we try to leverage the hive mind of all the people who are doing this work around the world. Uh, we also do monthly trainings, different topics on light pollution, where we bring people together over Zoom. And it's really fun to see everyone's faces from Aruba to Argentina to Uzbekistan. There's people from all over the world that join into these calls. So that's the favorite part of the work that I get to do is just interact every day and really try to share the successes and highlight the work that people are doing around the world. That's amazing. So I want to check in. You said um, you have facilitated multiple marriages. So, or you? <laughs> no, just director of engagement. You know. Oh, like, I get it. Day. Yeah, it's I a bad it. joke, but <laughs> I see. Well, what maybe I was thinking... maybe there's been some marriages. Yeah. Well, what I was thinking is because I I felt this too in this space of the dark sky uh, community that. There's a lot of pockets and we're starting to find each other to unite into a larger conversation. So I guess I wouldn't be surprised if you, in your role, saw that you introduced people for better or for worse, I guess, pun intended. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I love that you're sort of a pollinator in trying to bring these communities and different conversations into a larger conversation where people can know each other and then affect greater change. Would you say that's sort of um, your oh, goal? Oh, exactly. Yeah, the goal is to, to build relationships, right? And to help, you know, people find each other who are maybe working on similar projects or who have the same issue in their community. And, you know, because it's like someone in Colorado may have figured out how to do a lights out program where someone in New York City is just getting started. And so it's, it's all about building those connections and those relationships so that we can all help each other because we, we all need each other if we're gonna really move the needle on this issue. Totally. And that's interesting that you mentioned the lights out program because I'm hearing more and more cities start to consider lights out programs. Somebody just sent something to me the other day about New York. Um, so that would be a really interesting city to entertain, um, dimming the lights. Um, what are you hearing about the Lights Out campaigns in your work? Yeah, well, one of the really cool programs that Colorado is, is working on is they have been doing a lot of promotion about, you know, lights out during migration. I kind of think it should be lights down during migration, just because we, we do get pushback from, you know, from people who are who think that we're trying to turn all the lights off, which is not what we're trying to do. It's just about better lighting, right? Not no lighting. Um, mm -hmm. But <laughs> what they're doing is working with volunteer pilots and they have done flyovers of the city to document the light pollution from above before, during and after their lights out for migration program. So that's a really cool um, addition to the kind of general lights out advocacy work that people are doing. In Utah, they did a really great program called um, a Migration Moon Watch, where people went to the Tracy Aviary and they brought big telescopes out looking at the moon. And you can see nocturnal migrators as they fly across the light of the moon. And that wow. just kind of raises awareness to, 
you know, we don't really think about birds as, as nocturnal migrators, but a lot of them are, majority of them are. It's a lot better for, you know, navigation, clear skies, less predation, better weather. Um, and a lot of them are songbirds as well that migrate at night. And those are the ones we all have a particular affinity for. So that was a great addition as well to that Lights Out program in Utah. Um, and then also a lot of programs are doing monitoring of, of high-rise buildings. So they'll have volunteers that will go out uh, in the wee hours of the morning, you know, three or four o'clock in the morning and, and count the bodies of the birds that have collided mm. with buildings throughout the night to kind of get an idea of where the problems are, where they need to be focusing their efforts, and also just raise awareness to how many birds are colliding at night due to light pollution and lit buildings. Yeah, the the bird problem is, it's grave and it's it's heartbreaking to know that there's so much death happening um, as a result of the way that we build and the way that we illuminate. Um, interesting fact, I was just reading that um, they studied a bird that actually sleeps while it's flying. Um, and it may be more than one organism, but they figured it out because there are some birds, like the Arctic tern actually mi migrates about 50,000 miles in a year. It chases summer. So how mm -hmm. would a bird get all its sleep and make those migration uh, distances? So they, I think that was, you know, partly part how they came upon this theory. And they, they've studied that a bird will actually sleep, um, turning off part of its brain while it's, it's wow. flying. Yeah. So these That's organisms so cool. are am amazing. And um, this has been a theme for me lately, but just that I, I think that we overinflate uh, human intelligence and really, you know, I couldn't fly and sleep at the same time. Um, that's an amazing <laughs> adaptation mm -hmm. uh, that I want to give homage to. So I, I think the, the bird problem is both fascinating and heartbreaking to see. Um, and there's just millions of, especially at this time of year, there's millions of mm -hmm. birds migrating. Um, and they're very out of sight, out of mind for humans, but there's such an impact that we're having. Um, and I would, I would love to see a way that we could live more symbiotically. So let's jump into astrophotography because I yes, just love, it, <laughs> it comes through so easily, how much you love it, how much you love sharing it. Um, and so I love seeing your work when um, we're interacting online. And so um, how did you get started in astrophotography? I think you kind of answered that with your first, your, your first dark sky question. But um, talk to me about your process and then, and then we'll get into how you advocate through it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I kind of mentioned it, you know, it was through, you know, we had to take photos for dark sky park applications and I, I'd always thought it was super mm. cool, you know, but it never really felt accessible to me. It seemed like something really difficult, like technical, super hard, you know, only really fancy cameras, expensive gear could, could do it. Um, and so once I kind of had the experience of like, oh my gosh, you can do this with any camera, you can do this with any type of equipment that you have, you can even do it with cell phones nowadays super easily. Um, it, to me, is like an exploration of science and art as one. You know, it, it it's like a way that we can see more into the universe than our eyes can see that we can portray as an art form. And that just really spoke to me. Um, mm -hmm. And so once I kind of, you know, learned to use the camera to capture more of the beauty of the night, then I, I just wanted to keep doing that because it's, it's really stunning the amount of light that you can capture with the camera. I wish that we could like open our eyes and expose them for 30 seconds and then get that photo, but it's really unfortunately only we can do it with a camera. So I've just wanted to do one of that and try to see as much of the universe. Yeah. And so, so you, I think you, it says that you, I, I wrote that you have 12 international dark sky park applications under your belt, maybe more at this point. So you were documenting the night sky for these applications. Is that what you were doing? Yeah, we st we started 12 dark sky park applications. Okay. So we okay. I, I worked at for state parks for like a year and a half. So we did not get all of them across the finish line before 
my internship ended, but um, yeah, we started 12 different dark sky parks across the state of Utah, which was incredible and huge props to Utah State Parks for all of their support for the Dark Sky Places program. Uh, they have many a dark sky area that deserves a recognition. Um, but yeah, we, we would go to all of these different locations and photography was just one piece of that for the application. Mainly it was driving around all day, counting all the lights for the lighting inventory, um, as well as driving around all night, taking um, SQM measurements for the application, uh, working with the maintenance and facility folks on, you know, supporting lighting retrofits and helping them understand, you know, the types of lighting that needs to change, what's good, what's bad, um, writing lightscape management plans, documenting kind of the history and supporting outreach and star parties at all of the locations as well. So it was really fun. I actually learned about star parties through you um, when I was researching for our podcast today. And I want to go to one. That sounds amazing to be with have people. Have you never been to a star party? I have nev- no, it what? sounds amazing. Oh my God. <laughs> right. Well, it sounds like more of a party than it actually is. Uh, it's definitely a party, but it's it's a it's a gathering of folks right under the night sky sometimes there's telescopes sometimes there's not i actually personally really prefer just learning about the night sky through constellation tours and naked eye viewing kind of what you can just see from your hot tub in the evening Mm. um, because you don't need special equipment right you just really need your eyes in a dark sky to appreciate the beauty of the night sky and to me, it's the stories within the stars that are the most captivating and, you know, what the constellation means to all the different cultures and, and how they've changed and evolved over the years and the history of our observing is, is my favorite part of star parties, but also seeing Saturn through a telescope will change your life. So, whoa. Oh my highly gosh. Recommend. Okay. I've just put that on my bucket list. That sounds amazing. Um, and I just want to say- you can even say... see that in a light polluted area. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, like um, pla- the planets and stuff, you don't have to have super dark skies to appreciate through the telescope observing. So there's always things to see, even if you're not in a dark sky location. Well, I think so just you telling me that fact right now and me also watching your presentation on uh, astrophotography, uh, both such really helpful, accessible facts that I really appreciated because I am definitely not an astrophotographer and um, I've always sort of been like, okay, you hand me a digital SLR camera and I'm like, what do I do? So mm-hmm. I think you have such a compassion because you you originally felt that gateway and then you busted through yeah, exactly. it. So when you teach, I hear that. And I was like, oh my gosh, well, if I am out West with my digital SLR I'm going to listen to your presentation and listeners, you absolutely should because you demystify it. And just you saying Thank that you, you can see the planets in the sky, even in a light polluted sky, that's also demystifying because it really makes the night sky a little closer to everyone. And because it's been a little too mm-hmm. far away for all of us. So I really heard um, how good of a teacher you are when it comes to astrophotography Um, And I made a note for myself to get back to it because I've always been overwhelmed by all of the settings. So, um, well, thank you now. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you do work sometimes with the Tucson amateur astronomy association. Is that right? Um, well, I don't actually live in Tucson anymore. Uh, we got to have a remote environment for IVA once, uh, once COVID hit. So, um, yeah, I live in Western Colorado now, but um, yeah, our local Tucson chapter does mm. do a lot of star parties with the TAAA down there. They're super helpful in the outreach around the Tucson area. So when you are taking a person through the the gateway of astrophotography and you're teaching them from the start, what are you seeing in terms of how you teach about light pollution through that, that lens and, um, you know, what's the, what's the impact and what kind of, uh, reactions have you gotten through people that you've reached with this? Yeah, well, I'm going to steal a kind of a term from Ryan Andreasen who works with dark sky Layton in Utah. He was on the show. But he's yeah. always, 
He was, did he say? Yeah. What, like what he says about how, you know, you can't really appreciate or care from care for something unless you touch it. Mm-hmm. I think that that is a really impactful part about how astrophotography can create new dark sky advocates because when you when you kind of create art or you create something and you have that photo on your camera that's that's from you you know that came from you that's your work that's your heart and soul in that and I think that brings people a lot closer to the subject as well as not only are the stars brighter when you take photos of them but light pollution is so much more evident in a photo than to the naked eye so when you're in a location with people and you're taking images and they see that dome of light come up on the back of their camera screen I think they start to understand the true power of light and how impactful it really is um, beyond just what we can see with our naked eye. That's really interesting that the camera picks up so much more light so that it's more evident. Um, I I generally get to that aha moment by talking about different species reactions. And in that way, people also can't turn away. So I love that you're getting to this aha moment in your education from a completely different angle. That's, That's fascinating to see. So your goal you've said is your is to make astrophotography accessible to everyone so um are you making like lots of astrophotography fans um in your corner of the world would you say it's a burgeoning art form oh i think it's definitely hot you know i feel like it's trending now more and more people are are getting into astrophotography are inquiring about it um but i think there is there are a lot of barriers to people getting into astrophotography. You know, dark having access to dark skies is one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always, you know, try to mention to, you know, even people in big cities like New York City, there's still so much to photograph, even though you're not going to be able to get the intricate details of the Milky Way, right? But the moon, the planets, conjunctions, um, you can even some meteor showers like bright Perseids can be seen in like polluted areas. So there's always always amazing photo photo opportunities of the night, regardless of where you are. Um, Stan Honda is one of my favorite kind of urban astrophotographers. He lives in New York City and has just incredible shots of moonrises over buildings and planets over parks. And um, it's really inspiring to me because I tend to get a little, you know, pigeonholed into dark sky Milky Way photos. But, you know, he and other photographers inspire me to branch out and and not only do the dark sky stuff um but i think there's a lot of other barriers as well you know even just like women don't feel comfortable being out at night a lot alone Mm -hmm. either in rural Mm -hmm. or kind of urban areas um and even you know phones and cell phones do take images of the night sky very well nowadays but the cost of you know, photography equipment, lenses, tripods, intervalometers, that can be a huge barrier for folks as well. So there's a lot of things that that we need to work on to make astrophotography more welcoming to to everyone. Um, But I see it getting more and more popular and I love to see all the cell phone astrophotography blowing up as well. Yeah, I I actually can feel that. Um, I know that you said women. And I also um, was when I was researching you, you were saying how darkness is a privilege. um, And it was, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's a really true point. um, And it's something that is currently um, emerging as a topic in the lighting industry as well, that we light uh, places differently, and it's not done fairly. Um, So I know that you started the the women in, or I don't know if you started it, but I know you're part of the women in Astro group. Yeah. Um, and I'll just say, you know, um, I think that astrophotography sounds amazing, but there's intimidation for me as a girl going out west and not knowing my way around and trying to get to a park mm-hmm. and would it be safe and and you know would I look stick out like a sore thumb? Would people know that I wasn't from there and would that be make me vulnerable? So there, I feel all those barriers on a personal level. Uh, so um, can you talk about this organization and, and how it might help someone like me? 
Yeah. So I have really been slacking off with it recently, but um, (laughs) the goal really is, again, I think I drew a lot of inspiration from the, you know, the Dark Sky Advocate Network in that the goal of Women in Astro was really to create a space to bring female photographers together and to create that network so that if you're traveling to Oregon, right, you can maybe go to the spreadsheet and be like, okay, there's like these four women photographers in Oregon. Let me hit them up and maybe they want to come shoot or they can share information with me about where safe places to go are and what I need to look out for. Um, And so, yeah, our main goals were kind of to start creating like a database basically of female astrophotographers in areas around the world to create that um, community and support so that we can support each other um, and help each other kind of get out at night and feel safe while doing it. Uh, We were also doing kind of monthly informational presentations on different aspects of astrophotography, but those have been kind of hard to keep up with. Um, and we haven't done them for a while, but those are really fun too. We had, you know, just inspiring female astrophotographers come and talk about their area of expertise and, and share tips and tricks on how to improve your photography. Um, and we also try to create a space where there's a Facebook page too. So a, a group where you can go and, and share your photos, ask questions, ask for feedback. And um, then we would really like to help elevate those photos as well and get them out and into the world of astrophotography because a lot of what's shared and a lot of what's out there are just like your typical old white dudes um because they've you know they've been the ones that have i don't know why but that's just kind of the way it's been um and even just personally in my experience i was so honored to be invited to be the second female astrophotographer for the group the world at night which, you know, has existed for probably 10 or 15 years. And they had about, you know, 45 photographers. And for most of all of those 10 or 15 years, they were 100% male. Um, Carrie Ann was their first female, I think, probably about six months ago. Um, And then I came shortly after. So it's good to see that there's some recognition in the the community that it's an issue that, that should be worked on. Yeah. And to have that representation, it gives people like me someone to look to as a model and a guide. So I think that's amazing that you are paving the way um, because it's true that um, I remember listening to a study about, you know, why there weren't more women in fields like engineering. And it's because they're always alone in their working environments Mm -hmm. as the only example of that person. And so it's much harder to be creative in that space when you're like the one person that's like yourself in those environments. So um, I think it's really helpful to have representation. Um, So thank you for paving the way. Um, And so you've worked on a lot of dark sky projects, um, maybe helping those applications. Can you talk about your, your work with dark sky projects and some of the problems you've come across and some, some of the, the wins that you've had? Yeah. I mean, I think the main problem that we all come across in this field is the argument of safety. Um, and I've seen it, I grew up in, I grew up in, so we were part of the the Moab Dark Skies group. I grew up in in Moab, which is rural Utah community, but, you know, home to three gold tier dark sky parks and um, just a haven for astrophotographers. People flock there to see the night skies and to take their photo of Delicate Arch with the Milky Way. Um, And so the Moab Dark Skies group has been doing a ton of work in the community. They're working on an application for a dark sky community for Moab. Um, And I just remember, you know, not too long ago, seeing people in the in the Moab Facebook group really just like talking about how we're a special interest group and we want to turn all the lights off and we want to reduce safety. And like, if we do any lighting changes, there's going to be more pedestrian accidents and car accidents. And um, so it's everywhere, right? Even in places that do embrace the dark, like Moab, there are going to be people who who react to that and who, I think, you know, it's from a a place of, of fear of the dark, which we all have, you know, I fear the dark as well. 
Um, but I think it's just really important in the messaging that we're not trying to turn off all the lights. We're just trying to light in a better way. Um, and I think Moab has also done a great job of kind of turning that around and building positive support for it. They do, you know, local community events where we'll bring the telescopes to the ballpark and just have communities come out and, and observe the stars and that helps them touch it as well and feel connected to it. And one of the best programs that I've seen in Moab is they actually have a grant for lighting retrofit assistance. So because we're having a new lighting ordinance and within 10 years, people are gonna have to change their lighting, they're gonna have to pay for it in some way, shape or form, right? And a lot of people can barely afford to live in Moab in the first place. So there, there's a grant you can apply for up to $200 for assistance to retrofit the lighting in your home. And I think that's an incredible way to, to build support and goodwill for people to make those changes, right? Because you can tell someone you need to do this and you have to pay for it and they're not going to want to do it. But if you say, you know, you have to do this, but here's the money to support you. Here's the resources on how to find this lighting, you know, here's all the ways we can help you. I think it builds a lot of goodwill within the community. Um, and they've also done a great job on, on another positive incentive program, which is the Dark Sky Friendly Business Award. I've seen those in, in a lot of communities as well, where they give positive publicity and exposure to businesses who have dark sky friendly lighting and give them a window cling to put in their window that's dark sky friendly business and take out a little piece in the paper to celebrate that business. And that just really helps you know build support from the business community, show that we're not anti-business, we're not anti-commerce you know, or money, right? Actually, we're trying to bring more tourism dollars into the community. And so that's been a really positive program as well. That's an amazing program because it really allows businesses to um, link up and associate themselves and then also really advertise the cause um, and all while mm -hmm. doing the right thing. So it's, it's a really, I hadn't heard about that program. That's fantastic. Um, <clears throat> and it's interesting that you mentioned light and safety because someone, I mean, that's, that's really, I've recently started talking about light pollution, that there's two gateways to get through. One, that light pollution is far more than just a nuisance. It's uh, mm -hmm. a, a, an issue of, light, of climate change that is uh, grave. And then the other is if you can get past that issue, then you have to get past the issue of more light is safer, quote unquote. And yeah. that is, I don't think anyone has in, in our world of advocacy has quite gotten over that hump yet. We, that's the one we're tackling right now. And someone just sent me a study yesterday saying there was, um, they did a study, I'm still reading through it, um, but that there were streetlights that were off and there was no increase of crime, except that the streetlights that were on in the neighboring streets actually ended up getting more crime as in the crime was attracted to the light. It just sort of moved over mm -hmm. to where the light was. So that's an interesting study because what it's saying is that more light is not safer. More light is potentially crime uh, attracting. So that's mm -hmm. a really interesting point. And I think what we've discussed here on the show quite a bit is that we need to maybe change the angle of our inquiries um, so that we're studying the right things um, especially as it pertains to more light is safer, because that is a very loose correlation. And we're betting darkness and the night skies on a very risky, loose correlation that is not, it's not enough. It's only part of the truth. And it leads to a lot of overlighting on the planet. So I'm glad you mentioned that. And so um, I know that we have art in the world. Uh, and I love talking about people's art. So you, you, I know one of your art is astrophotography. Do you have any other artistic pursuits in your in your world? Uh, well, I sing in the shower a lot. Um, oh. <laughs> but, I mean, I would say photography is definitely my main jam when it comes to art. Um, I've done painting and drawing, but nothing has really captured my soul the way that photography does. Yeah. And, and so you're an interesting 
person to ask this question of because your your art so directly relates to what you do. And I think that's actually a reflection of the fact that you, it seems like you've positioned yourself in the world in a way where you're so perfectly positioned to what you love that it seems effortless um, from the outside looking in. <laughs> but but my, my question for you, and in general, I ask about a person's art and how that influences their work and then how the work influences the art in this beautiful feedback loop. So how does astrophotography feed your soul and how does it help the work that you do in which is so related and which is kind of an unusual part of asking you this question but yes how does it feed your soul um well i feel like the night sky to me is just it's very spiritual um and you know i'm not a religious person but when I go out under dark skies, to me, that is where I feel the most connected to everyone and everything and to the universe. And I just find a sense of peace and calm and wonder that that feeds my soul in a way that nothing else ever really has. Um, and so like, yeah, to me, it's my church. It's my therapy when I'm stressed or angry. If I go out and take some photos of the night sky, I always feel better. Um, and I also like, to me, I feel connected to like my ancestors, you know, like I even feel, I can feel just the history of the lineage of people and places that have brought me to that moment to experience that dark sky. It just feels like an effortless connection and you feel connected to the past and the future and yeah, it just, it feeds my soul in so many ways. And as well as that, it helps me to, to feel connected to the other people on this earth. And I always think that that's why it's such an important part of the work that we do is that there are so many boundaries that we put up between ourselves and others today that to me really dissolve when we look up at the night sky and remember that we are just all on spaceship earth, right? We're all humans. Mm -hmm. We're all here together in this crazy, mysterious world that doesn't make any sense and will never make any sense really. Like we can pretend like we kind of understand some things, but we have no idea, right? And so I think it's that sense of wonder and awe that, that means everything to me and is why I gravitate to being out under the night sky. And that's why I, I wanna share astrophotography with the world because I want everyone to feel that feeling um, and so also you know it's really revitalizing in that people think I do astrophotography for my job right but that is just the fun fun thing I get to do on the weekends but you know I'm we're on a mm -hmm. computer every day all day answering <laughs> hundreds of emails and people yelling at us for not doing enough or doing too much and mm. um yeah, it's it's you know, it's easy to get bogged down and like all of that blah kind of stuff. And so I just get energized from going out under a dark sky and remembering like this is what we're fighting for. Yeah, I I've uh, I love that you say it dissolves barriers. And one of the barriers that I love that it dissolves is that it also dissolves the barriers between humans and wildlife and that arrogance mm -hmm. that we tend to come in with because the stars are a point of survival for all living things on the planet and we migrated with with uh with the stars as do many species as well so it's it connects all living things and i believe that it's a birthright for all living things mm -hmm. so um and and another aspect of the dark sky that i also love is that it's, it's, um, I always think of it like, you know, when horses have the, the blinders on, well, it's sort of like yeah. human blinders, <laughs> like, yeah. like it calms you down. You go out, you're blanketed by this entire visual field of beautiful star filled darkness. And I think that that does something very significant for our systems of perception. And I think that's mm -hmm. why we start this show with tell us about a feeling of awe underneath the night sky, because I think it's 
it's not you can't replicate that from any other natural phenomenon that's what the night sky really did for us as humans and what worries me is that <clears throat> we had that experience nightly up until about a hundred mm -hmm. years ago and that was yep. a meditative experience that we could go out and have and and you're so lucky and thank you for being a person that goes and does that and talks about it and comes back and and reflects on on the arc of of what you had from a computer filled day to after you how you feel because you're leading the way in terms of explaining to people what they're missing and i think that for humans you know we always we kind of get stuck on the human component um but in a way we mm -hmm. have to stay there to sell it so that we can get back to wildlife and so i think there's something really really missing from our days in constant brightness when we never release to that beautiful dome of the night sky so it, it's mm -hmm. interesting to hear you talk about it because it's so close to your work it's part of your art and um and that you still suffer from these n normal daily things of too much light and too much screens and that you use it as an antidote that's amazing that's amazing yeah so you. you're from yeah you're from moab utah and you used to mm -hmm. I, I read that you um slept on the trampoline as a kid underneath the night sky yes. what was it like to grow up yep. so close and have that every night for you i mean i didn't know it was special you know like wow. it was just normal like but yeah it was it was a formative part of my youth for sure like we would every night pretty much sleep on the trampoline have sleepovers have friends over and I live not only in Moab, but outside of Moab. So like mm. the dark outside of the dark, it's dark where I grew wow. up and where my family still lives. And so the Milky Way was brilliant, like bright, like cast shadows bright. And, um, you know, it was like I would look up at the night sky and I remember, you know, you would hear people talk about trying to count the stars right like mm -hmm. you're like how many stars can you see and i was just like how like what like i couldn't you know there you couldn't even count the amount of stars in like one degree of the night sky let alone the whole sky you know and so i would look up at the stars and and it was for me very meditative as a kid like i was like who are we why are we here you know why are we humans and not like weird three-legged pigs and what does this all mean and you know it was just a place where i could like ask questions that i think we all ask as kids and we even still ask to this day right like what are we doing here why are we like this why is the world the way that it is and what like it was just such a mystery and I think that that mystery is so important to like to just experience and remember that like we don't know everything and we're never going to know mm -hmm. everything and I remember you know as a kid when like iPhones came out you know or like things kept coming out I was like we know it you know it was easy to think like we know everything that we're going to know like this is the epitome of like intelligence we've reached it you know but then it was like a stark reminder when the night sky was up ahead that you're like, oh no, we don't know everything. And actually the magic that we're taught about as kids, you know, Santa Claus or fairies or whatever is nothing compared to the magic of the actual universe. And so, yeah, I guess it was really, it was really important for me to have those experiences as a kid. And that's why I'm sad that, you know, people, all over the world don't get to have those experiences as a kid and my our in, our other intern at state parks um sarah webb she you know i was talking to her about you know sleeping on the trampoline in the summers as a kid and you know she was like oh yeah i did the same thing but it was a very different experience for her than it was for me you know because she lived in salt lake city and that was a moment where I was just like, whoa, you know, I just didn't even realize how how special my experiences were because of the quality of the night. Yeah, I well, I I didn't grow up with a night sky quite like you did. I was in upstate New York um, on the side of a mountain 
So very, very wild. And in that way, I feel very fortunate to have had that very raw experience with nature. I'm sure I did see the night sky, but I think it just in no way compares to yours. Um, but I, yeah, it's interesting to hear how we have these experiences that seem normal to us. And then you don't even realize to the mm -hmm. amount of how different it was for you. Um, and I, I love the way that you describe that moment when you're underneath the stars and you can't help but get existential and be like, yeah. whoa, what is this all about? And I've had that mm -hmm. moment and it's actually a little scary. I don't know if you've had that fear oh, of totally. like, where it just like, oh yeah, blows up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's, it's scary. Oh, I remember and, specifically I fear, like we were, I, it was, a, this was when I was working for state parks so and we were sleeping under cots out by Red Fleet State Park, which is in Northern Utah under the, under the skies. And the Milky Way was just so bright. And I was just laying in my sleeping bag, looking at it. And all of a sudden I was just like terrified, just so terrified. Like, and it's, a, it's hard to kind of explain it, but it sounds like you've had that experience too, where you're just like, all of a sudden you just feel like, you know, you have nothing to stand on. And yep. That, I have yeah, chills right I now. I think that, <laughs> yeah, that dissolves ego, I think, which is like also yes. another thing that we like desperately need more of in this world, you know, but that was the other experience I was thinking of saying at the beginning is that moment under the stars where I just felt terrified, you know, for, yeah, and I couldn't shake it, you know, you it's all hard to shake for a little bit. You're just like, what, what are we doing? <laughs> yeah. Because you get so caught up in your day-to-day -day life, like, oh, when's that email going to mm -hmm. come through and I have to send this and you have to send that. But that line of questioning that happens without fail underneath the night sky is, you know, what are we? Who are we? What are we doing? These much broader questions, which really end up making those other questions seem really small. And I think mm -hmm. when you face the unknowable like that, that you realize that any problem that you have has an infinite a number of solutions. Uh, and maybe even the solution is just thinking of it from a different point of view. Um, and so mm -hmm. I feel like that is just very obliterating to our egos, as you say, and to our current point of view. Because you're right. I think the fearful part is that here you, you, you come into that moment under the night sky thinking you know a lot. And then mm -hmm. that night sky teaches you that you basically know almost nothing. Yeah, it's exactly. a very scary realization. But I think it's an important meditative exercise for humans that we've stopped taking. And we take our little mm -hmm. lives a little too seriously without thinking about this larger picture of perspective. So I, I think that's amazing that you, yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, for me, it's also about, you know, it's definitely like we know nothing, but also it's like that we are a part of that something that we know nothing about, you know, like it's, it's not just separate. It's like that. Right. I'm like, I'm this tiny speck but I am a really necessary part of this tiny speck of this infinite universe, you know? So mm -hmm. like we're here for some reason and we're a part of this huge thing and we're connected to all of it too. So I think that's a part of it too, is just realizing that immense connection that we have that we tend to lose. Yeah, I, I agree. So, so in your work, in your work as the director of engagement, it seems like you are really pulling together a community of people. Um, and so what, what do you feel emerging in this community um, as a group that's starting to know itself? What do you, what do you think, what do you feel is happening? Um, I mean, I feel like people are hopefully starting to feel more positive about the future mm -hmm. of dark skies. Um, Cause you know, we always say light pollution is the only kind of pollution you can solve at the speed of light. Um, but I think that's why I gravitated <laughs> towards dark skies as an environmental issue, because I was, you know, studying the environment, 
you know, grew up in nature, love the earth. I'm a big hippie, whatever. But like everything is so polarized, right? Like climate change, oil and gas, you know, habitat destruction, rainforest deforestation, all of that is like, it's politicized, right? It's very Mm -hmm. left and right, red and blue, black and white, you know, you're on this side or you're on that side. And to me, light pollution and dark skies was the one environmental issue that I feel like did not have that polarization. It does not have a left and right. Like there are a lot of people who are more conservative who support dark skies and like humans love the stars. Like there are so many reasons that we can come together on this issue. And so that's kind of what I see happening is people from all walks of life, from all political ideologies coming together on the issue of dark skies. And and that's what gives me hope for the future. So what's on the horizon for you and your work in the next five years? What are you hoping to emerge on the horizon? Uh, less sky glow on the horizon. Um, <laughs> Good call. <laughs> well, what what I where I would really like to see us go is I think we need to step into the social justice aspects of this work if we want to really remain relevant and become, um, you know, a driving force in in changing light pollution. I think we need to tap in to the equity and access of of this issue and how it impacts, you know, people of color in ways that are different from, you know, other people and women and, you know, able or not. And um, I think if if we really want to make inroads and make changes, we're going to have to step into urban communities. We've been very, you know, focused on conserving the dark in these rural remote locations and that's great and that needs to happen but we need to reach people where they are which is in cities Mm -hmm. um and so i've been so excited to see you know the newer urban night sky places come out um the one outside of chicago it's 25 kilometers from chicago city center um, and it's a place people can go and experience what you know, dark sky friendly lighting looks and feels like without having to travel eight hours to a remote area of Southern Utah, right? And so I think just focusing on the urban aspects, the social justice aspects of this work is really where we need to take it in order to scale our advocacy, bring more people into the work and in order to really make changes that are lasting and impactful. I, I love that response. I think that's such a good um, point to put on the horizon, uh, which is that when we talk about envir- the environment and social justice, that when we're talking about light, that there's a lot to draw in terms of a comparison. Um, and I just learned of this book. It's called Unsustainable Inequalities, Social Justice and the Environment. I've not read it. I just learned of it yesterday. Um, but I think it's a, it's touching on this work that you're talking about, which is that we have these sort of somewhat competing interests, but I don't think they're competing. I think they're actually, mm-hmm. um, there's so much to untangle there so that we can move forward in the in the highest and best. So I, I love that response. I think there's there's so much work to be done there and I think that they can actually work together. I agree. So um, is there anything else when you look into your, your head and your heart that you want to share with our listeners for today? Um, I don't know. Thank you for listening. I would love people to join the Advocate Network. Um, we, oh. we need all the people we can get. Um, and it's very easy. All you have to do is go to our website, darksky.org. Um, And there's a get involved tab and then you go down to join the advocate network um, and there is a link there to, you know, sign up. We will, we ask you to watch an IDA 101 training, uh, which is just a recording of me talking about probably everything we've talked about in this podcast. So you could just feel free to email me and say that you've watched it already. If you've listened to this podcast. (laughs) Um, and then we invite you to join Slack. We invite you to the monthly meetings. You get an advocate monthly newsletter. Um, 
And we're also um, in the process of finally updating our chapter and our delegate program. So we are about to have updated, easy to sign applications and online agreements for that. So just be on the lookout for that if you're interested in being kind of a local point of contact in your area and getting more involved with IDA and more involved with local organizing. We would love to hear from you. Well, that's great. I, I love that you've um, given our listeners a way to get involved because that's so important. So Betty Maya, thank you so much. It was really wonderful to finally meet you and sit down and talk. Thank you for all of the amazing work that you're doing for being a lightning rod, for gathering our, our community and making sense of it and making sense of the voices within it. Um, because I think you're bringing everything into a clear harmony. And I think that's so important to get the message out. So thank you for all the work that you do. And it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. And thank you for all that you do. Your show is amazing and also helping to raise awareness and bring more folks into the field. So thank you and keep it up. Thank you. Realization, but I think it's an important meditative exercise for humans that we've stopped taking. And we take our little lives a little too seriously without thinking about this larger picture of perspective. So I, I think that's amazing that you, yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, for me, it's also about, you know, it's definitely like we know nothing, but also it's like that we are a part of that something that we know nothing about, you know, like it's it's not just separate. It's like that. Right. I'm like, I'm this tiny speck, but I am a really necessary part of this tiny speck of this infinite universe, you know? So mm -hmm. like we're here for some reason and we're a part of this huge thing. We're connected to all of it too. So I think that's a part of it too. It's just realizing that immense connection that we have that we tend to lose. Yeah, I I agree. So, so in your work, in your work as the director of engagement, it seems like you are really pulling together a community of people. Um, and so, what what do you feel emerging in this community um, as a group that's starting to know itself? What do you what do you think? What do you feel is happening? Um, I mean, I feel like people are hopefully starting to feel more positive about the future mm -hmm. of dark skies. Because, um, you know, we always say light pollution is the only kind of pollution you can solve at the speed of light. Um, but I think that's why I gravitated <laughs> towards dark skies as an environmental issue, because I was, you know, studying the environment, you know, grew up in nature, love the earth, I'm a big hippie, whatever. But like everything is so polarized, right? Like climate change, oil and gas, you know, habitat destruction, rainforest deforestation, all of that is like, it's politicized, right? It's very mm -hmm. left and right, red and blue, black and white, you know, you're on this side or you're on that side. And to me, light pollution and dark skies was the one environmental issue that I feel like did not have that polarization. It does not have a left and right. Like there are a lot of people who are more conservative who support dark skies and like humans love the stars. Like there are so many reasons that we can come together on this issue. And so that's kind of what I see happening is people from all walks of life, from all political ideologies coming together on the issue of dark skies. And, and that's what gives me hope for the future. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what's on the, um, what's, what's on the horizon for you and your work in the next five years? What are you hoping to emerge on the horizon? Uh, less sky glow on the horizon. Um, <laughs> Good call. <laughs> well, what, what I, where I would really like to see us go is I think we need to step into the social justice aspects of this work if we want to really remain relevant and become, um, you know, a driving force in, in changing light pollution. I think we need to tap in 
to the equity and access of of this issue and how it impacts you know people of color in ways that are different from you know other people and women and you know able or not and um, I think if if we really want to make inroads and make changes, we're going to have to step into urban communities. We've been very, you know, focused on conserving the dark in these rural remote locations. And that's great. And that needs to happen. But we need to reach people where they are, which is in cities. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I've been so excited to see, you know, the newer urban night sky places come out. Um, The one outside of Chicago. It's 25 kilometers from Chicago city center. Um, and it's a place people can go and experience what, you know, dark sky friendly lighting looks and feels like without having to travel eight hours to a remote area of Southern Utah. Right. And so I think just focusing on the urban aspects, the social justice aspects of this work is really where we need to take it in order to scale our advocacy, bring more people into the work, and in order to really make changes that are lasting and impactful. I, I love that response. I think that's such a good um, point to put on the horizon, uh, which is that when we talk about environ- the environment and social justice, that when we're talking about light, that there's a lot to draw in terms of a comparison. Um, and I just learned of this book it's called Unsustainable Inequalities, Social Justice and the Environment. I've not read it. I just learned of it yesterday. Um, but I think it's, a, it's touching on this work that you're talking about, which is that we have these sort of somewhat competing interests, but I don't think they're competing. I think they're actually, mm-hmm. um, there's so much to untangle there so that we can move forward in the, in the highest and best so I, I love that response. I think there's there's so much work to be done there, and I think that they can actually work together. I agree. So um, is there anything else when you look into your, your head and your heart that you want to share with our listeners for today? Um, I don't know. Thank you for listening. I would love people to join the Advocate Network. Um, we oh. need all the people we can get. Um, and... It's very easy. All you have to do is go to our website, darksky.org, um, and there's a Get Involved tab, and then you go down to Join the Advocate Network, um, and there is a link there to you know sign up. We will we ask you to watch an IDA 101 training, uh, which is just a recording of me talking about probably everything we've talked about in this podcast. So you could just feel free to email me and say that you've watched it already. If you've listened to this podcast. <laughs> um, and then we invite you to join Slack. We invite you to the monthly meetings. You get an advocate monthly newsletter. Um, and we're also um, in the process of finally updating our chapter and our delegate program. So we are about to have updated, easy to sign applications and online agreements for that. So just be on the lookout for that if you're interested in being kind of a local point of contact in your area and getting more involved with IDA and more involved with local organizing. We would love to hear from you. Well, that's great. I I love that you've um, given our listeners a way to get involved because that's so important. So Betty Maya, thank you so much. It was really wonderful to finally meet you and sit down and talk. Thank you for all of the amazing work that you're doing for being a lightning rod, for gathering our, our community and making sense of it and making sense of the voices within it. Um, because I think you're bringing everything into a clear harmony. And I think that's so important to get the message out. So thank you for all the work that you do. And it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for inviting me and thank you for all that you do. Your show is amazing. And it's, also helping to raise awareness and bring more folks into the field. So thank you and keep it up. Thank you. Folks, I know you just fell in love with Starving for Darkness once again. Every show is such a mind blower for me. And I'm so grateful for our guests and for Jane Slade and everything, all the work she's doing and all the contributions everybody's making. But before we do, 
we got to go to the magicians. we got to thank them. Evluma.com. That's E-V-L-U-M-A.com. Hover over products. Click on dark sky friendly lighting. And let's do it. Greg, what do they, what do they got down there? Well, with their OmniMax product, it maintains illuminance efficiently. They said that once. I'm like, that's important because, um, or ambiance, I should say, efficiently. Ambiance and lighting. They have the Kelvin temperatures covered, and they make it efficient by being LED. So they've got everything you need without sacrificing the light you love. So Starving for Darkness, thanks, you folks. Go to starvingfordarkness.com, but also Evluma, the magicians. That's E-V-L-U-M-A.com. Come on, click it. Hover over products. Click on dark sky friendly lighting. And get her done. Thanks for listening, folks.